0: Starting verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. O oh, unbelieving and perverse generation! Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the tax collectors, or the collectors of the two drachma tax, came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked, From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons, or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. Open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it, and give it to them, for my tax and yours. Let us pray. Father, we come before you at this time in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come before you on his merits, on his goodness, and not any goodness that we have. It is only in his goodness that anyone can approach you, can call you Father, can know you as their Savior. And we thank you that you sent him into this world to become the savior of unworthy sinners like us. To make us your family and to bring us back to God. To bring us to yourself. That through him we could have forgiveness of our sins. A righteousness that he has earned in his own living and the the penalty being taken on our behalf through his own death, so that we are free from the penalty of the sins that we commit, and of our sinful nature. We are free from the penalty we deserve because of who we are, and we are free from the fear of death. We thank you that you rose him back to life again, so that we can not only have the forgiveness of our sins by your grace but we can also have the power to live by faith the power to walk in the newness of life that we need and we thank you that he is seated once again at your right hand and that he continues to offer up prayers and petitions on behalf of us help us to think more about this truth in our day to day life and in seeing how much He has done for us and how much He continues to do for us. May we trust in Him all the more. May we love Him. May we lean on Him for the strength we need to stand fast. Help us as a church to be faithful to Your Word. Help us to be salt and light in a dark world and help us to understand what it means to be a Christian church, to be distinct from the surrounding culture, but also to be part of this culture in a way that we're witnessing in both deed and in word to the gospel of salvation for their benefit and for your glory. We ask that you would do these things Again, for your own glory and for our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for a little while. And there's an overarching theme that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's shown in different ways. And we see it again today, especially in verses 14 through 20 of chapter 17. And that is this, this theme of the dominion. The dominion that Satan has actually taken. A dominion which was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. In the command that we see when God made man and woman in his image. And he said, uh, go, go and be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Have dominion. There was a sort of authority and a power that once existed in men, which has become distorted. And one of the ways that we see this recurring theme proven is by these these beings that Jesus has to deal with throughout his earthly ministry. These beings, these creatures that are called demons. Um, Perhaps if someone's listening and you're not familiar with what a demon is just to give you a brief description a demon is simply a fallen angel a creature that was created by God to glorify God in part by by serving humans and by Satan tempting Adam and Eve all the the angels who followed in his path have become what we call fallen angels or demons and instead of serving mankind. They do what Satan does. They deceive. They destroy. They divide. And they have a a type of authority, a type of power that most of the time we don't see any other person being able to deal with. And so I've entitled this sermon, The King's Dominion. And I want us to see at least three things in, in particular that come out of this text. First of all, we see the sovereign rule or reign of Jesus over Satan. We see that Jesus is sovereign over Satan and sin. Secondly, we see that he is sovereign over his own betrayal and death. Thirdly, we see he's sovereign over all of our needs, even the needs that we call small or less important. So let's look at verses 14 through 20 again, as we consider this first theme, this first idea We see here that Jesus is sovereign over Satan and sin. Look at verse 14 again. Those first few verses. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. We're not told the man's name. We're not told the name of his son. But we're only given a description of the life that his son is experiencing. And by extension... Obviously, the life that this father is having to try to care for, the life of his son, suffering. He says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. O oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus replies, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And Jesus rebukes the demon and you see the the demon coming out of the boy. So initially we're not actually told that there is a demon possession. But we're told that the effects of this demonic possession, this demonic influence, that the boy suffers with seizures. Those of you who maybe yourself or or people you know in your family or friends group that have suffered with something like a seizure, you know how painful and how challenging it can be to have to deal with that on an ongoing basis. And just as a caution, every time you read a passage like this, you shouldn't jump to the conclusion that every time someone suffers from a seizure or some other sickness, that there's a direct demonic possession involved. That's why we don't see doctors today going around casting out the demon of seizures but they still are able to help with them but we're told here that this was a direct influence of a demon a personal being who through the indwelling possession of this man's son is inflicting only negative and painful things and so again we're reminded of this This bondage and this rule that Satan has over the world. A type of bondage and a type of rule that we cannot ourselves be set free from. And we also see that this man, who we're not told much about, has a a different kind of trust, a different kind of faith, if you will, than the disciples of Jesus. You notice that he brought his son to the disciples. He had an expectation that the followers of Jesus could actually deal with this problem. Why would they get that idea? Why would a person think that followers of Jesus could actually cast the demon out? Could actually deal with this problem? It's a good question to ask. Well, if you go back to chapter 10 of Matthew, you'll see what we've already looked at in brief. That Jesus chose 12 apostles And he sends them out on a type of commission. And as part of that commission, he says, I'm giving you authority and power to cast out demons in my name as part of this mission of declaring that God's kingdom has now come. It's a very clear point that is being made. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you both the instruction and the power to follow through on this instruction. So people would have heard that they were doing this in Jesus' name at this particular time. And so we may not see this kind of influence today. And we might wonder why that is. Perhaps I'll get to that. But there's another commission that Matthew records for us that Jesus gives to his church. Not just the apostles, but the whole church. At the end of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you and I will be with you to the end of the age. Notice he doesn't say anything about demons there. But he does say that our mission as a church is to proclaim and to teach and to instruct, to baptize. And he makes it clear elsewhere to continue doing the Lord's Supper. And that's a type of proclamation Paul tells us, that in doing that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So there's this, there's this clear power struggle at work. And this is behind the scenes in everything that's going on today, quite frankly. We as the church, we may not be in the shoes of his apostles. And in fact, we're not. We follow in the succession of their ministry. But we as the church have this mission to show the rule and the reign and the sovereign power of Christ... To remove darkness, to remove the influences of Satan in one person's life at a time through his loving power. This is what passages in the Old Testament spoke about when it said that he came to set the captives free. And so we see this in various ways. This is one of the ways that we see it throughout his earthly ministry, casting out demons with a word. And then he sort of rebukes his disciples. You notice what he says to them he rebukes the demon but first he rebukes his disciples for having so little faith they go on to ask him after this event why couldn't we drive it out he replied because you have so little faith I tell you the truth if you have faith as small as a mustard seed you can say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move Nothing will be impossible for you. Now this was a phrase that was used at this time. And the Jews who were listening in particular would have understood that this phrase did not mean that if we have enough faith, we can go and speak to a mountain that God in His wisdom put down in a certain place and make it jump into another location. Everyone who heard the words of this statement would have understood that. Contrary to what some false teachers today would have you think. Those words do not mean that if we have enough faith we can speak to things. As if we have the creative power of our words that God does and make things change. What it means is the mountain referring to metaphorically something that is basically so big that it blocks your vision for the the path in your life that you're going. If you can picture driving down a road and you have to drive through a mountain if there's a tunnel, maybe you don't know the tunnel is there yet, but as you approach the mountain, the closer you get to this mountain, everything else around is blocked out, but you know you need to get to the other side of this mountain. It's simply a manner of speech, a figure of speech, which means things which seem impossible to you, by faith in God and dependence upon Him which proves your faith in God you'll be able to go through them. And if you look carefully if maybe you've already picked up on this you'll notice that in most of the translations you're looking at there's a, a verse that's not there. It goes from verse 20 to verse 22. Right? For whatever reason in time certain translators started to add in a verse that was never there in the first place. The verse is simply found in, Ma- in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. It's a verse that adds a little bit on, where Mark records the same event, and Jesus basically says to his disciples, this kind, in other words, these kinds of beings, that demons, this kind can really only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Essentially what Jesus is saying to his disciples, when he if you put together lack of faith and that verse, he's saying that what, whatever the issue was, they were not depending on God in this circumstance. Maybe they were being prayerless. Maybe they were not walking in the, in the faith that they needed to have. Maybe they were getting a little too self-confident at this time. But Jesus says, your faith is misplaced. And essentially the issue was a lack of dependence on God and a type of self-dependence or independence. Something that's promoted as good today. You contrast the disciples again with this man and his posture. You notice how he approached Jesus seeking for mercy. He got down on his knees. This is a symbol of someone who is depending on God. It shows a number of things first of all it shows that he understood his position before Jesus to bow down before him and call him Lord is a, a posture of submission it's a posture of humility and so we as Christians today thinking about how these verses might apply to us is it not true that we do this in many ways we just make decisions about life without prayer. We just have conversations. We just make plans. We just put programs in place. We just jump into events that are taking place without trying to have biblical discernment and prayer guide our steps. Perhaps it is a lack of dependence in a similar fashion why so much of the modern church might appear to be weak. Perhaps. But in our own individual lives. We need to ask ourselves. Are we being self-confident? Are we being self-dependent in the way we go about living our day-to-day lives? But notice that Jesus, even though he rebukes his disciples. He turns around and casts out the demon. And then reasons with them. In other words. Come on guys. Trust in me. Be dependent on me he's patient as he is with his people throughout the ages and so we see here while we don't have sovereignty in ourselves over the darkness of this world over the major ideologies that are trying to encroach upon Christianity and change and influence the church there's someone who does the same Jesus who casts out demons the same Jesus who walks upon the water. He's the same one today who, if we stand firm on His Word, will prove both in our lives individually, personally, that He has the conquering power to rule over our personal problems, our sin, including self-dependence, and break the power of cancelled sin. You, you remember that old hymn? Actually, I actually don't even remember which hymn it is. But there's an old hymn... That says he breaks the power. Of cancelled sin. He sets the captives free. And one of you will probably remember the hymn. But the point is. For those of us who have received. The forgiveness of our sin. The gospel is also about. The promise that Jesus will reign. In our hearts and our lives. Over our sin. Which we are not powerful. Against. So we shouldn't be ever thinking about where are the demons today the influence of Satan continues throughout the world and I think in a very real sense the fact that Jesus remained obedient unto death and said it is finished started the end of his finished work if you, if you want to think about it that way there's a sense in which Satan is he, Jesus has started to bind him up already He started to bind up the strong man who had this kind of dominion for so long until one day he's cast into the lake of fire. But his influences are still at work very powerfully. And one of the ways that he influences us even as believers, churches, individual Christians is through our minds. That is the primary way. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 that we need to be renewed. We need to be renewed in our minds, so that our, we, we can be transformed in our whole lives, do not be conformed to this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, and thereby by doing that regularly we will know what God's perfect will is, what is pleasing to him. We don't know what God what is pleasing to God outside of that maybe you've been praying about something some decision that you have made or would like to make and you you don't sense peace about it or something like that very often God's will is not going to come by an extra special remedy but actually through the basic means of grace through prayer through reading of the word he makes his will known to us as our minds are being shaped according to that so Jesus shows his sovereignty Even in in, in great and and powerful ways like this, but also in day-to-day basic ways, He is sovereign over Satan and sin. And so we should be bold as Christians to declare the gospel, knowing that that is how His kingdom advances over the kingdom of darkness. Not because of our strength or our wisdom, but because the power of the gospel remains the same until it's done its work. And so we can, we can be confident and we should be confident in that. And secondly, we see that Jesus is sovereign over betrayal, his own betrayal and death. Look with me again in verses 22 through 23. This is the second prediction of his death. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the, the disciples were filled with grief. Again, we saw the first prediction of his death and burial and resurrection. In Matthew chapter 16, just a page before. And if you remember, Peter's response to that was, No, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. We don't want you to die. We, we, we don't understand why, the, why you would say that. That's not what is going to happen. If Jesus rebukes Peter. But after this second prediction here, there's no response. The disciples are filled with grief. Perhaps they're not focusing on the part that says, be raised to life. Maybe they're still so caught up in the things of their Life in the present that all they can think about is the fact that Jesus is going to die. And is that not true for us too? We get so caught up in our daily lives, in our suffering, in our frustrations that we forget that there is an end to our life which is the beginning of a greater eternal life if we're trusting in Christ. Amen. And that is a controlling force that we've been blessed with, with the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We should think carefully about that whenever we face the challenges of life. I know easier said than done, but it can be done in Christ's strength. And so we see that Jesus is again reminding and and, and revealing to his disciples what his purpose in life is. This time again, it says that that no one responds, that they were greatly distressed. But notice he adds something in. He uses this word, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Or perhaps you're reading a translation that says, delivered into the hands of men. So now he's not only saying that that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to be killed. But he's added something in. That there's going to be a person who's going to betray him into the hands of his accusers and his executioners. Jesus knew fully well that the man named Judas, who he spends three years feeding, giving shelter to, and taking care of, loving, is going to betray him. You ever been betrayed by someone close to you? Ever felt that that sting of betrayal? Jesus understands what that's like more than any of us will ever be able to. But He understands. The author of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He can understand what we're going through. Not only was the Son of Man a person that had no place to lay His head, who came to suffer and to be betrayed? Now we see this. He came to be betrayed and to die. And we often think about purpose. You hear people talking about purpose. It's one of those big catchwords. Oh, there's a conference about purpose. I need to go over there. But imagine if someone told you, I, I would like you to go on this mission. The purpose of this mission is for you to die. How many children in a high school lunch hour would go to that booth? No, it would be crazy just to sign up to die for no reason, obviously. But Jesus is making it clear. He is on His way to Jerusalem. The purpose for which He came is actually to be betrayed. And He knows by one of His closest Friends, obviously, it was a fake friend, but by one of his closest friends, and then to be put to death at age 33. It's a good thing from a young age, since you're in the service with us children, to think about your life beyond just when you graduate. It's a good thing for all of us not just to have a five-year plan. In fact, it's a good thing for every Christian, for everyone, but especially for those of us who are Christians, to have more than just a a five-year plan, a retirement plan, and that's it. What we as Christians should think about is what would life look like from my legacy, from my faithfulness in the next 50 years. How could I bless the next two or three generations through what I do? And that kind of thinking is rapidly dying. I know many of you know this more than I do. But we need to learn how to think with an eternal perspective. It is only with that kind of mentality that Jesus Christ, as a true human, truly man, could endure at age 33, far before some of us would think He was in his prime, could endure this mission's purpose, looking death and betrayal in its face, and head to Calvary's cross. Doing it both for God's glory and for love. For love of people who, quite frankly, if we're honest about the man and the woman in the mirror, are not all that faithful to him by comparison. But Jesus was sovereign even over his betrayer. We'll eventually get, if the Lord wills, to Matthew, I believe it's chapter 24 or 25, where the, the Lord's Supper is instituted. And we see Jesus there in that Passover meal, passing around the cup and the bread. And Judas, at one point, dips his bread into the cup and says, Is it I who will betray you? Jesus says, Yes. You have said so. He knew. And there's a phrase that I think we use sometimes, not always in the the same context, but at that point, Jesus says, Whatever you're going to go and do, you go and do quickly now. He's saying, Go ahead. No one else knew what he was saying. Jesus knew. Judas knew. But Jesus is sovereign. Over Satan, he's sovereign over his own death. He was the the Lamb of God who had come to lay down his life for the sheep of God. He's the good shepherd who says, "I lay down my life of my own accord, and I will take it up again." And so we see that in the face of things like betrayal or being seriously hurt by people we may love, as a Christian. We can forgive that instead of letting generations of unnecessary foolishness harbor, which so often happens, does it not? We need to recognize what we have been forgiven of and recognize that God was sovereign over every situation in our life, including betrayals, and forgive as we have been forgiven. And even if death stares us in the face, as so many of us have been to so many funerals recently, even if the plan and the will of God for your life at an appointed time is that you would not survive a serious illness, He's worthy. And Jesus is sovereign over that. And He's working even that, the worst possible thing for the good of those who love Him. Because again, at the end of your life if you are a Christian death becomes a doorway into paradise. And that can create the hope that we need. The hope that the world needs. The hope that the world would never find anywhere else outside of this King of God's Kingdom. This glorious Jesus who humbled himself to depend upon his creation, to depend upon the Father, to submit himself to obedience to the word and will of the Father, to suffer, be betrayed, and at age 33 die the most horrific death for people who don't deserve it. Because Jesus is sovereign over things like that, we can have hope, we can have joy, even in the middle of pain. But we see, perhaps in a simpler example, finally, we see third and final, that Jesus is also sovereign over regular day-to-day needs. Look at these last verses, starting in 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? This, um, this tax was a you can find it in Exodus, I believe it's chapter 30. and it was a tax that God had put in place, not the tax collectors of the day. a tax that God had originally instituted for every male that was over 20 years of age, that they would begin to pay taxes to the temple, because, well, if a person's life is dedicated to doing temple service, God, in His kindness, thought, they need to make a living. <laughs> They need to eat some food. And so that even the sacrifices that were made. Back in the old covenant. A portion of them would be given to the priests. And you see things like this throughout scripture. But this was a tax that. Was in place in Jesus' day. Because this is still. A time when the, the temple. Or at least temple worship. Was a thing. Now it may have been that. At this time when Matthew was writing. That the temple itself might have been destroyed. In fact. It may have actually been, if it was after the temple's destruction that this portion of Matthew was being written, it may have actually been that a a pagan temple, which was nearby, was that the Romans were taking some of these taxes and using it to basically serve a pagan god nearby. And so a true Jew would have thought about these kinds of taxes and said, I don't want to pay taxes to this kind of paganism. I serve Yahweh. I serve the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so they may have been struggling with this, this idea. But regardless of the situation and the background that was there at this time, notice what Peter says. Yes, he does, he does pay this tax. And it seems as if Peter may have put his foot in his mouth again and just quickly said, yeah, oh yeah, he pays. So Peter goes to walk back into the house. When Peter walks into the house, Jesus is the first to speak. You see, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered, then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. You see the picture here. Jesus is saying, look, we know that there's injustice in systems like this today. Even in the Jewish nation, if the, it, even if this was written before the temple came down, the Jews themselves, perhaps especially with money, were not being faithful in the way they dealt with taxes. So whether it was just that they were Taking taxes from everyone, but secretly exempting their children, their sons, and themselves. Or whether it was that part of this tax was now being given to some pagan type of worship. Jesus is making this point. There's this kind of system, this, this play at work, that the sons are exempt. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about why that's important. Jesus says, yes, the sons are exempt. So they're just collecting taxes from everyone, but not their own household. That's not fair in and of itself. But Jesus goes on to say this in verse 27. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now this this total amount that he told Peter he would find in a fish's mouth, right? This shows us that Jesus is sovereign over nature. He can command this fish to have what would have been the equivalent of a week's wages altogether. Imagine opening a fish, a big wahoo or something, and finding a week's wages in there. This is what Jesus basically did. He told Peter, Go throw a line, and then Peter as a fisherman of that day would have usually been used to nets. But he says, Go throw your line in and pull up a fish, open its mouth, and you'll pay for our taxes, our temple taxes. I think what Jesus is trying to both teach Peter and through this whole example teach us that came after this time. Us who believe. Again is that Jesus is sovereign over our every need. But also. Jesus in part of fulfilling his salvation plan. Fulfilling the, the, the accomplished salvation for whoever looks to him. He had to obey. All of the old covenant regulations. All of the the sort of um, Ceremonial laws and sacrificial laws, everything that was in place until he said those three words on the cross, it is finished, had to be fulfilled. And so, because Jesus was being asked a question about something God put in place, not man, he said, Listen, Peter, we live in a world, and I think he's saying to us today, Listen, church, we live in a world where the systems that we have at play are not fair. There's, there's injustice. However, that is between the people who are conducting themselves in those offices and God. Unless something is clearly against the Word of God, this is the pattern He's setting, we are to submit to the governing authorities. We are to submit to all the various leadership positions that God has instituted and Jesus says as a faithful Jew Peter we're going to pay these taxes and I'm going to teach you just how powerful I am to help you with paying these taxes see Jesus had to obey that law himself their conscience those men who took the taxes and whatever they did that's between them and God but Jesus chose to obey what was put in place by God until he took his last breath as as an act of what you could call passive obedience while he was hanging on a tree. And by doing this, Jesus, when he says the words, it is finished on Calvary's cross, he brings to an end all of these rituals and ceremonial examples, these, these types of obedience that existed in the Old Testament. He brings them to an end so that now we have freedom in Christ to express our faithfulness and our obedience in different ways. The Ten Commandments still stand firm. We need to understand them in their context. But God's moral law still has a place in the life of every Christian and is a benefit, actually, to every non-Christian on this planet. So Jesus is setting a good example here for us about how you function, whether it's in a religious setting or or a more broadly speaking, a societal setting. But Jesus actually is showing by the words, then the sons are exempt. He's giving us a picture of a type of freedom, not in an unjust way. But think about this. Who was the temple And the whole temple system built for. It was built for God. It was built around the worship of God. And who is Jesus Christ? He is God's eternal son. He's God the son. So you'd be right to say that temple was built for his own glory. But look at his humility there. Submitting himself to this regulation. And helping Peter pay his little temple tax to show that he's there with us in this way. But also to show that there is coming a time when this temple system will no longer stand. In fact, Peter himself goes on to write in one of his epistles. And you can turn there if you'd like to. And I'll, I'll read from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter goes on to, to say that in Christ we have a new identity. We're no longer to understand ourselves primarily based on our nationality or anything else. But if you're a Christian, these are the words that apply to us as Christians. He says in First in Peter chapter 2 verse nine, "But you are a chosen people, a royal." And elsewhere, if you, if you just go back and read that whole chapter, in fact, those first two chapters, you see that Peter describes and Paul elsewhere describes the church and, and the kingdom of God throughout the ages, but today that's expressed through the church. As a temple, we're a new temple. We're living stones of the new covenant temple. We worship by the spirit of God and truth. And so... It is our responsibility as those who know that this is our sovereign Lord who has dominion over all things. Remember what he said in that commission at the end of this Gospel of Matthew. He says, all authority, all authority, which has to do with rule, rights, reign, power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. That is your purpose. That is my purpose. I don't need to have a long conversation. We don't need to have a, a long conversation with each other. We can. But I don't need to wonder what is your purpose if you're a Christian. We have the same purpose. It's it's, it's it's this purpose that we just read about in 1 Peter. That through whatever your calling might be. Maybe you're a doctor. Maybe you're a lawyer. Maybe you're retired. You know. Which I... I know I keep hearing. Doesn't mean you get short of work. (laughs) But the ultimate work that we all are called to until we take our last breath is to proclaim this gospel, to let people know about this Savior and to show these two kingdoms at work and that our King is the one who has dominion and to call people to repent and believe in Him. You see, in a very real sense, Jesus is in the business of world domination. Maybe you don't like how that sounds. I'll say it again. <laughs> but I'll say it again, yeah. This is His world, as one old hymn puts it. This is my Father's world. When He comes back, He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell with Him and reign as kings and queens. That's what that old story that C.S. Lewis wrote called Narnia is depicting. And I don't know if you've seen those movies. they are kings and queens in this this coming glorious new heaven and earth and we need to represent that now you know we've been through a few years we had covid oh you can't go to church you have to watch online you can't this and that what's happening you know the sexual revolution everything's falling apart no jesus has dominion and our part is to stand firm on this gospel and be faithful according to it in our various callings, in our families. And He will do the rest. And we will all bow before Him when He returns. Some of us in worship and submission, others in defeat and everlasting judgment. If you're listening to my voice today and you have not yet been born again, if you've not repented of your sin, of perhaps your self-trust, you think you're a pretty decent guy or girl, lady or gentleman. And you don't think there's a need for you to do more in your life than maybe just add a few services once in a while. Add a little Jesus in. If you've never truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sin, for the salvation of your, your, your soul, your, your forgiveness, for, for your righteousness that you need, then let this be the day that you do that. He came and lived and, and showed His dominion in all these ways. The ultimate way that He showed His dominion was by rising again. After He said those words on the cross, it is finished, He, he breathed His last and He said, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And three days later, He rose up from that grave, and forty days after that, having eaten and and drank you know, drank drinking and eating with his friends, he proved he was fully alive. He then ascended back to the Father's right hand, where he's reigning and ruling from now. And he can rule in your heart today. If you turn to him and trust in him, you, you become one of his children, part of this global spiritual but very real church, as we call it, which expresses itself through local churches like the one that we're in now. Those of you who have done this already and who are Christians, remember that that's the way he expresses his rule and reign. Not through your efforts outside of local church commitment. Jesus reigns. And the way that we prove that is by... Marching to church on Sunday morning. Marching to work on Monday morning. And standing firm on this gospel in our cubicles. In our government vehicles. In our conversations about whatever comes up. In our singleness. In our dating lives. In our hard marriages sometimes. In all the situations we find ourselves in. This is our mandate, to declare this gospel in word and deed so that the world can see that this king has dominion and that he is not just a powerful king, but he is altogether good. So let us strive to be those kinds of people with his help. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you again. In the name of your precious Son, we we praise you for sending him to, to live for us. To live a life that we cannot of perfect, sinless obedience to you. To prove his, his love for, for you and his love for his neighbor. And then to die on Calvary's cross. To take the full punishment of what hell itself is. To take the full weight of hell itself upon himself. And to declare in victory, it is finished. And to rise again so that we who trust in Him have been risen spiritually to newness of life, to walk in a new life. We praise You that You have granted this for all of us who believe and that You can grant this even now for someone who may not have yet believed. Would this be the day of salvation for someone? Would this be the moment where someone for the first time hears the call of Christ in a personal and powerful way? Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Would you do that? Would you call someone even at this moment to yourself? And would you call those of us who are your children already to rest in you? not to lie down and take a nap, but to rest with strength and confidence, to be refreshed, to be comforted, convicted, and sent out onto this mission field of the world, starting in our houses. Starting in our houses, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we find ourselves. Help us to be faithful. Until we see Him again, we ask these things in His name.